Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. One of the first Christian books I read was Here I Stand. It's a biography about the 16th century reformer Martin Luther. Uh, And it's a captivating read. Uh, I was inspired as I read it. This young Christian, I'm like, yeah, I want to be like Luther on the word of God. Here I stand. Uh, Inspirational. Uh, Since then, I've gone on to read quite a few Christian biographies. They're inspiring, aren't they? Yeah, when I, uh, there's this line from a 19th century uh, missionary. He went from England down to what was then called New Hebrides. Uh, it's now called Vanuatu, uh, John Gibson Payton. Uh, and just before he left, his Christian mates back in England said, don't go. Don't you know those New Hebrideans are cannibals? You'll be eaten by cannibals. Uh, to which Peyton responded, I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it'll make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. Don't you love it? Inspiring. Uh, I'm, I'm inspired by Corey Ten Boom, Elizabeth Elliot, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, three of my huge heroes. Uh, here's, a, here's a tip. Have a couple of heroes. Uh, Not just heroes for sport, for for hobbies, for career, but a couple of Christian heroes. A couple of Christian heroes that inspire you to be more like Jesus. Now, here's a tip on my tip. Know your Christian heroes' flaws. Uh, Even if our hero is mum or dad... Our Christian heroes have flaws. Yet, you see, not only do we need Christian heroes to inspire us to live more like Jesus, we also need Christian heroes to remind us that there is far more to uh, this than this life. Yeah? Uh, Today, in that passage that's already been read, we met our hero for today. was sort of weird, wasn't it? Haven't we been building up over the last couple of weeks for the final dark demise of God's people? And yet out of the darkness up arose a hero. Sort of sounds like a Hollywood blockbuster, doesn't it? And so here's where we're headed this morning. We're going to meet our hero and then we're going to discover his problem. I mean, a hero, to become a hero, has to have a problem that he overcomes. And then we'll see his victory. And then we're going to finish by looking at his fatal flaw. That's where we're headed. A hero, a problem, a victory, a fatal flaw. And so firstly, let's meet our hero again. Have a look at 2 Kings 18 verse 1. You got your Bible open? 2 Kings 18 verse 1. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, remind me again, which kingdom was Israel? North, I saw a point, yep, that was the northern kingdom, so, uh, but down in the south, 
Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, southern kingdom, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, according to all that David, his father, had done. Wow, that's different to the previous Judean kings. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to Yahweh, he did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses. Yet we've been so used to reading the refrain, either they didn't follow Yahweh, or the southern ones, they did follow Yahweh, but not like David. Verse 3, it's just stunning. This one, Hezekiah, followed Yahweh. And like David did. And then that that verse that said, and even better. Stunning. Uh, It's it's a shock. It's like jumping into icy cold water. Refreshing, but disorientating. Could it be that Hezekiah is the forever king that God promised David way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Now here, I'm going to digress a little bit out of two kings, just just to remind us how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Uh, this is a big book, isn't it? I mean, 66 books, it's, it's big within the one book, and yet it is all telling one story. This is God's story of how he rescues his people through his glorious son. And, and one framework that we sometimes talk about, perhaps not often enough, of how to read God's story as one big story is under the framework of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Uh, now, sometimes I'll put in the word rescue for redemption. Uh, rescue is easier to understand. Redemption is more theologically correct. And, and restoration, uh, recreation I'll sometimes use as well. But that's a really good slide. So, I think we can just cope with restoration and, uh, and redemption as well. But, um, so, what does all that mean, though, for reading the Bible as one big story? Uh, creation and fall happen really quick, don't they? First two chapters. I mean, first, creation. God made everything. He's boss. He's wonderful. He's good. We're made in his image. That's chap- uh, chapters one and two. Chapter three, Adam and Eve sin, fall, bang, straight away. But even within those first couple of chapters, we're already getting hints that God is going to be the Redeemer and the Restorer. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have this very clear word from God that a child will be born that will bruise the head of God's enemies. Um, And so we start reading God's story, don't we? Okay, is this the head crusher? We're caught up in God's story. We're looking for the head crusher. Um, Noah, could he be the head crusher? Nah, he was flawed, wasn't he? Abraham, is he the head crusher? Nah, he was flawed. Moses, 
he was flawed. David! Nah, he was flawed. But as we're reading, God keeps sprinkling, just keeps putting in his little promises, I am going to send a redeemer, and he will restore all things. And, and that brings us to one of the big chapters, 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised David that David would have a descendant that would sit on David's throne forever. And so then we keep reading God's story. Instead of looking for the head crusher, is this God's forever king? Is this God's forever king? And so we come back to 2 Kings chapter 18. Could Hezekiah be God's forever king? He followed Yahweh. He obeyed Yahweh. He did better than King David. Could this be God's forever king? Intriguing. Fascinating. Hollywood blockbuster. Okay, here we're going to move from a hero to a problem. Our hero, Hezekiah, he had a problem. Did you notice the interruption the author introduces in verse 9? As uh, Paul's reading out to us, um, there's this reference back to Hoshea, king of Israel. Uh, we dealt with all of that last week. It was finished up last week. Last week we looked at the northern kingdoms gone and yet here is this interruption again at verses 9 uh, through to 12 of re-talking about the northern kingdom. Why? Well, because Hezekiah down in the south had a problem. It was the same problem as the northern kingdom, Assyria. Uh, Assyria is uh, Hezekiah's problem. Now, have a scan over 2 Kings 18. Look at how long that chapter is. Just scan over it really quickly. Then over the page in my Bible, chapter 19, all the way down to verse 13, all of those verses are talking, are telling us about the problem of Assyria coming against Hezekiah and the southern kingdom. A lot of verses, so we're not going to be able to read them. I'll summarize. But, but I trust that you're reading the chapters at home. Whether it's before Sunday, before the sermon, or whether it's before point group, I trust you're reading them because this is intriguing. This is fascinating. This is a Hollywood blockbuster. But I'll summarize for you now. Here's the summary. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, did come after the southern kingdom. And Hezekiah decided to pay him off with some gold and silver. Don't come in, don't, don't battle us, I'm going to pay you off. Which is our first little clue that Hezekiah was flawed. When Yahweh is your God, you do not need to pay off an enemy. <laughs> when whoever your enemy is, is Yahweh's enemy. God is your God. Hezekiah was a fool. And sure enough, we're told in chapter 18 that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, did not honour the payment, the payment. The king of Assyria sent three of his generals, uh, one of whom is called Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh was the main spokesperson for Assyria. Now, the generals and uh, their huge army laid siege of the southern kingdom. No food in, there's no escape out. And then the Rabshakeh would address this besieged southern kingdom. Uh, he threatened. 
He told them that no other nation has been able to stand up to the might of Assyria. The Reb Sheke mocked them over and over again. Uh, he offered the southern kingdom, oh, look, I'll give you 2,000 horses. Oh, that's right. It's not like you've got any soldiers to put on them anyway. Yeah, like, it's like a modern day, you're so weak, you, you, your dumbbells are with a pencil. Uh, he put the fear into them. He said, look, I've got you. No one has ever come out of our grasp. If you do not surrender, you're going to end up besieged, eating your own dung, drinking your own urine. But then the Reb Shekeh crossed a line. He mocked Yahweh. Have a look at verse 34, 18 verse 34. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Whoa. Imagine chest puffing. Yahweh. Intriguing. Fascinating. Hollywood blockbuster. Now in chapter 19, we, we discover Hezekiah, the king of uh, God's people, he was frightened. All of God's people were frightened of all these taunts. Uh, Hezekiah rips his clothes off, covers himself in sackcloth. He sends uh, some people off to go ask Isaiah the prophet, what's going to happen? And Isaiah, in chapter 19, uh, has a word for Hezekiah. Chapter 19, verse 6, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, Hezekiah, thus says Yahweh, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I'll make him fall by the sword in his own land. And sure enough, in the following verses, we discover that the king of Assyria had to call his generals back because he was fighting a war on another front. But the Rabsheke, before he left, wrote a letter to Hezekiah saying, okay, you've got a reprieve, but I'm coming back and I will destroy you. And this is where we read of Hezekiah at his most heroic. In chapter 19, verse 14, Hezekiah grabbed that letter and, and he put it down on the ground and he prostrated himself and, and he prayed. He prayed to Yahweh. And he didn't simply pray for deliverance. Let, let's listen to his prayer in verse 19. Chapter 19, verse 19. So now, O Yahweh, our God, save us, please, from his hand. And so, yes, he was praying for deliverance. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. That is Hezekiah at his most heroic. God, this is all about you. Please don't let these filthy Assyrians that don't know you, don't worship you, win. This is about you, Lord. 
Now, the next bit of 2 Kings 19, we read Isaiah's prophecy that Yahweh indeed smashes the Assyrians. Again, make sure you're reading these chapters. They're intriguing. They're fascinating. Hollywood blockbuster. So now we turn from uh, the problem to the victory. And the victory, is, it's astonishing. Look at 2 Kings 19 verse 35. And that night, the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nishroch, his god, Adramelech and Shezriah, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esherhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. <laughs> that didn't follow the Hollywood formula, did it? When this new hero turned up, the angel of the Lord... He just wiped them out. That's not Hollywood. The hero is supposed to, you know, get beat up a little bit, put down on the canvas, down and out, and then find some sort of inner resolve and rise up and then defeat the villain. But not this hero. Not the angel of the Lord. He just walked in and wiped out 185,000 of God's enemies. Do you remember how long the narrative is? All of chapter 18. Then just most of chapter 19. And then, then we just get these three verses. Three little verses. God walks in and wins. It's comical. But frightening if you're God's enemy. Let's fast forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. And let's look at the cross through the eyes of the devil. The devil must have been so excited when he saw Jesus head toward Jerusalem. The devil knew that in Jerusalem, there was a mob just waiting to execute Jesus. And then imagine the devil's glee when Jesus is handed over to the governor, Pontius Pilate. Imagine the glee of the devil when Pontius Pilate hands down the sentence, crucify him. I mean, picture the devil, like all the mocking, the whipping, the, the torturing, the nailing. Imagine his jubilation as Jesus breathed his last breath. But it wasn't his last breath, was it? Jesus' death is God's ultimate victory. At the cross, Jesus defeats sin. At his resurrection, Jesus defeats death. Brother, sister, sin and eternal death in hell make all of those taunts from the Rabsheke look like child's play. 
Sin and death are our greatest enemies. There is no greater enemy than hell. And in an instant, in an instant, our hero, Jesus Christ, defeated, smashed, conquered sin and death. And so tell me, can Jesus handle all of our lesser enemies? Here's where you go like this. Of course he can. Our problem is we forget. Our problem is that we don't remind each other. Jesus is the hero. We, we, we try and fix everything on our own. Or we try and avoid all suffering. You know, we, we build false theologies. Like if I say my prayers, if I'm a good person, nothing bad will happen. Or we buy into the world's theology that that you're entitled. You're a good person and you are entitled to comfort. Rather than buy into God's theology which says, wow, we are made in God's image and we are entitled to joy. The joy that is found in loving God And loving neighbour. But while we're waiting for the final restoration, we will have things go wrong. Instead of learning the biblical pattern of suffering well, we join the world in trying to avoid suffering at all costs. Yet we either kid ourselves with the lie, I'm invincible, nothing can touch me, or... We spiral into anxiety and sadness when we get overwhelmed by the cares of the world. That's what happens when we forget God's story. Creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. Brother, sister, Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the hero. Amen. Yeah. Therefore, nothing, nothing in all the universe can separate us from God. Now, Hezekiah and the southern kingdom, they were weak. They were completely vulnerable under siege from 185,000. I don't know what that would be like today. It would be like America, Russia and China all coming at Australia. Yet victory came in a single night. Jesus Christ was weak and completely defeated on the cross. And yet victory came in that single first breath as he's resurrected. We must learn to embrace weakness, suffering, even defeat. That is the way of our king. Okay, that's victory. Now to our final point, a fatal flaw. And and just in case, I guess, we we don't quite get it, that we really do have to 
prostate ourselves like Hezekiah. We really must humble ourselves so that we can exalt the true hero, Jesus Christ. Uh, We have chapter 20. And we just see this fatal flaw in Hezekiah that we're all susceptible to again. Again, don't have time to read through it all. I'm going to read some. We're going to summarize others. But you're going to go home and read it, aren't you? Because this is fascinating, intriguing. It's a Hollywood blockbuster. Got chapter 20 open, chapter 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. There's pastoral care 101. (laughs) Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh, saying, Now, O Yahweh, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of Yahweh came to him, Turn back. And say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of Yahweh and I'll add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and I'll defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, commentators are split on whether this is Hezekiah been following the Lord or not? Is this good Hezekiah or not? I I lean towards this is actually good Hezekiah, but a sook. I think Hezekiah's heart truly was for Yahweh. But Hezekiah is not the king we want to lead us into battle. He was a bit of a sook. But what we do clearly see is that God was patient and gracious with Hezekiah. Hezekiah's life was extended. But what Hezekiah did with that extension is plain stupid. After God defeated Assyria, a new kid on the block turned up, the Babylonians. And the Babylonians heard that Hezekiah was sick and so they sent an envoy to to go see him. And, And what Hezekiah did with that envoy was just ridiculous. Hezekiah invited the Babylonians to come into his kingdom and look at everything. Come and and explore all that I've got. It would be like you or I uh, letting an internet troll come in and and look at our passwords. It's just stupid. And so this brings us to Hezekiah's fatal flaw. Listen to God's judgment through Isaiah the prophet. Have a look at chapter 20, verse 15. Isaiah said, What have they seen in your house? What have these Babylonians seen in your house? And and Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers had stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, I read that as a judgment. Listen to how Hezekiah heard it. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of Yahweh that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not? 
if there will be peace and security in my days. My sons will be castrated. But hey, I'll have peace. Verdict, Hezekiah was a fatally flawed hero. Praise God that Hezekiah did all that was right in the eyes of Yahweh. There is a sense in which he's a true hero. And man, oh man, was he fatally flawed. And it's a flaw that we're all susceptible to. I suspect most of us think too narrowly when we hear Jesus say, you cannot serve both God and money. We tend to think of just money on its own, which means we don't feel the sting of what Jesus is saying. See, we, we look around and we see somebody else that has more money than us and we let ourselves off the hook. They make money, they're God, not me. But what if we took out the word money from Jesus saying and put in the word comfort? You cannot serve both God and comfort. We start to see that we're not that much different to Hezekiah. Yet we're all heroic when it comes to making a stand against racism. Yep, that's very comfortable. I stand with the world against racism. What about making a stand for God's sexual ethic? That's rather uncomfortable. And yes, absolutely, we should hear Jesus on money in Matthew chapter 6 as well. I'm sure today if Jesus would ask us why our average giving as Christians in the West is below 10%, I'm sure he'd ask us, not because 10% is a law, but because throughout history, throughout all of Christian history, generosity amongst Christians has been measured by at least 10%. So I suspect Jesus would say, how come you guys are the wealthiest to ever live and you're less generous? Surely the reason we're less generous is comfort. Brother, sister, every day we are faced with hundreds of decisions, aren't we? Every day we're making decisions. And so what is our decision-making criteria? Comfort or spreading a passion for God's glory? Comfort or laying treasures in heaven. All my life, all my praise, everything to you. Nice, comfortable relationships with our mates or taking hold of every opportunity to present the urgency of heaven and hell. Remember, Jesus is our hero. 
One day I won't have to ask you for an amen. He is. Jesus is our hero. He is. Takes all the pressure off us. He simply calls us to be faithful in our daily decisions. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are glorious. <laughs> story after story after story, true story, reality, throughout all of your scriptures, remind us that you are the Almighty. From the beginning, you spoke and everything happened. From the beginning, you promised you would rescue. You sent your Son. He's died in our place. He's defeated sin and death. Make our hearts believe. And Father, would you help us in all of our daily decisions to be faithful to the fact that Jesus is our hero. We pray this so that he'll get the glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.